You're listening to the Journey to Launch podcast, building alternative income streams and side hustles with Sandy Smith. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, 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 journeyers. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast. As always, I am excited for you to be joining me today, whether you are a first time journeyer and listener or new to the show, sit back and let's buckle up to take off. Before we hop into the episode, I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Empower. One of the most asked questions from listeners that I get is, how can I save more and reach my goals? And I usually reply with, you have to make it easy and automated as much as possible. So I'm always on the lookout for solutions for you to do just that, make saving easy and automatic. Today's sponsor, Empower, that's E-M-P-O-W-E-R, is an awesome mobile app that makes saving and managing your money the easiest thing you can do all day. For starters, Empower has an automated savings feature. You can simply tell the app your weekly savings target, and every day, Empower studies your income and spending and automatically knows when to move the right amount of money into your savings account where you're less likely to spend it. It's called autosave. Just set it and forget it. You even get access to a human coach that you can text for personalized finance questions. Download Empower, that's E-M-P-O-W-E-R, in the App Store or Play Store. I downloaded the app myself because you know that I have to give things a try before I recommend them, and I really like it. It's super simple and easy to get started. And for journeyers, that's you, you get $5 when you use the offer code JOURNEY and reach your savings goals. Visit empower.me slash journey for more details. Now, on today's podcast, I have on Sandy Smith, who I'm really excited for you to hear more about. So Sandy, I've known in the FinCon space for a little while now, but I've always been impressed by her content and what she's been doing for the community. And you'll hear why in the conversation. But Sandy founded the award-winning blog, Yes, I Am Cheap, which helps people save money and get out of debt so that they can live their best financial lives. She also started the Elevate community, which has now over 400 people who primarily serve people of color in financial education. And she launched this amazing conference called Elevate Influencer that brings all these individuals together so that they can discuss the unique financial challenges facing communities of color. So you'll hear all about that. And the thing about Sandy's story is she has her own personal debt-free and financial journey that she shares of how she created multiple streams of income, side hustled her way to getting out of debt, and what she can now distill to you listeners on what you can do to do the same. So I'm really excited for you to listen to Sandy's episode. If you want the episode show notes for this episode, go to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this episode. In the show notes, you'll get the transcribed version of the conversation, the links that we mentioned, and so much more. 
Also, whether you are an OG journeyer or brand new to the podcast, I've created a free jumpstart guide to help you on your financial freedom journey. It includes the top episodes to listen to, stages to go through to reach financial freedom, resources, and so much more. You can go to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart to get your guide right now. If you are enjoying this podcast, as you're listening, take a screenshot on your phone, share it on social media and tag me. I'm at Journey to Launch on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Now, without further ado, let's hop into this conversation with Sandy. Hey, Journeyers, back with another exciting, what I think would be exciting because Sandy is on the podcast, Sandy Smith of Yes, I Am Cheap, but also like a bunch of other things that she does. And she's gonna, she's gonna share that. But Sandy, I met you via like FinCon. I always talk about FinCon. Some people listen to me, they're like, what is FinCon? Who cares? Like, I'm just here to understand my own finances. But as a fellow yeah. personal content creator, I remember like you being one of the first people that I saw in the space. And I was like, oh, who's this girl? And like, you had your blog and you're always putting out content. So I'm really happy to get to know you a bit better, to share your story with my journeyers. And for you to distill all this knowledge that I know you gathered over the years. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. And I'm excited that your podcast is doing so well. One million downloads. Woo! That's big time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I was looking up your stuff that I wanted to share more about is that you have your own personal finance journey. So while you kind of talk about finances yourself on your platform, you yourself went through having a lot of debt and like hustling to pay that off. So I'd love to go back into what I read was $120,000 worth of debt. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. It actually ended up being like 130 because I also owed some taxes, like $10,000 in taxes out of nowhere. So yeah, it was about that. Yeah. Okay. So first let's talk about how long ago that was because I love to get context and then what that was comprised of. Then we could talk about your journey to paying that off. Yeah, it was back in the dinosaur age, back in 2009. Actually, the end of 2008 was when I started to compile everything. Then I launched my blog January 1st, 2009. And that was what I owed at that particular point in time. And then, like I said, the 120 was what I owed as of January 1st. And then I got a notice from the IRS (laughs) for like another $11,000. So it went up to like a little above 130. But yeah, that wasn't fun. So... Where did that debt come from and what made you decide to actually look that up at that point? What made you confront it at that moment? Yeah, it was all consumer debt. I didn't own a house. I didn't own a car. I didn't own a thing. Actually, I owed two degrees. That's what I owned. So I had a big chunk of money was from going to school because we were told you go to school, you go to college. It doesn't matter how much you owe. You're going to come out. You're going to make all this money when you come out. So it's okay. And I had a bachelor's degree. I had a bachelor in science. I had a master's degree, MBA in general management with a concentration of small business entrepreneurship. So a good chunk was from that, like $65,000 was from going to school, right? Doesn't sound like much now when people are coming out with like liberal arts degrees owing $100,000, but it was $65,000 was from that. A good amount of it was from ancillary things that I put on my credit card while I was going to school. Because at some point I was in school full time, then I realized that my debt was just creeping so I was in school full time. Then I, by towards the end, I was working full time and going to school full time, but I still had to put stuff in my credit cards. So as a science major at the time, we didn't have as many resources as you guys have. I started college in 1996, so I'm on the edge of the Gen Xers, the last in within the last two years of the Xers, and college books were $250, $300 a piece as a science major. 
and I would be taking two or three science classes at a time. So it wasn't unusual to spend a thousand dollars on books in a semester. Who had a thousand dollars sitting there? It would go on the credit card. So there was that. And then when I had graduated from school, I had this business degree and I opened a business. So it takes a lot of startup cash to open. I had a physical boutique here in New York City. It takes a lot of money (laughs) to get the space, to build out the space, to hire employees, all that stuff. And then you've got products and rent and all this other stuff. So I had my business. I had debt from opening my business. And then when the recession hit and I closed my business, I had some fallout from closing my business and I still owe debt and some taxes. So it wasn't like I was out buying Louis Vuitton, taking vacations, doing like all the fabulous stuff. I was mad boring. I went to school. I started a business. I owed the debt from that. I wish I had gone to like Bora Bora and sat on a yacht and something exotic that I could tell my kid about. But no, I was super boring. I was like responsible, responsible debt. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think a lot of people can relate to that, honestly, because so many, especially like around our age, because there wasn't as many resources and our parents most yeah. of our parents didn't have the knowledge to and equip us correctly with how to manage debt um, while we were in school, have that kind of story. So when you like realized how much you owed, at what point did you say, all right, because some people, they're like, all right, I owe that much and it's going to take me forever to pay that off. So it's just going to have to stay in the background. I didn't know I owed runner. that much. Okay. I didn't know I owed that much. I was, uh-huh. I got a job. I was responsible. I got a job. I was working on First, I was working on Wall Street and then started working for, at the time, Toyota's corporate offices. And I was paying my bills, paid my bills every single month, on time, always. If you look at my credit report, I've got one credit card that I've had since 1996. <laughs> Literally, I've never paid late once. However, I came to realize that I was paying my debt and I had no money. Like, I literally would have no money. And it was to me, it was like, I'm going to work every day. I'm paying all my bills. I'm paying them on time, every time. But what's going on? And then what it really hit me was, like I said, after I closed my business and we were in the recession, and I realized that between my now husband's home and my mom's home, I was the only person who was working. Like everybody had either been laid off or whatever. So between the two homes, I was the only adult working. And I was like, I'm paying all this. Where's my money really going? And so when I sat down and put it all together, like, okay, I owe Department of Education this much at this percent, here's my minimum payment. I literally sat down old school and wrote down Department of Ed, $26,000 for this loan, 1.99% interest rate. Actually, it was at that point, it was like eight and a quarter percent interest rate because that was crazy. And minimum payment this much. And I did that for every one of my debts. And when I added up at the end, I busted out bawling. It hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, yeah, how do I owe this much? And how, like, these are my minimum payments. I'm not even making progress. It's just minimum payments. And I was like, I am never going to pay this back. It's just, I felt like I was never going to do it. But I also, at the same time, also felt a responsibility because I am an immigrant and I realized very keenly that I had the benefit of having come to this country and gotten an education and had an opportunity to start a business. And I felt a very keen responsibility to pay my debt. I felt like 
I had gotten the advantage of getting these loans to go to school. It was my responsibility to pay it back. Nobody told me to start a business. (laughs) That was my fault. I should have just gotten a job like average (laughs) Joe. And it was my fault. And some of the debt that I owed was for people who believed in me and invested in my business. I wasn't going to just walk away from them. You know, these are my friends and my family. Of course, I was going to pay them back. And I can't run away from the IRS. So it was like all the debt that I had, I felt like I was responsible for it and I had to pay it. But I didn't know how much I owed until I sat down and wrote it down and put it all together. Then I was like, damn, (laughs) now I need to like really focus on this and be smarter about it than I have been. Yeah. So then what did that look like? Because a lot of people see that much and they're just like, Mm -hmm. "Um, I can't do that. That's just like a house payment. So that's just going to have to get minimum payments for the rest of my life. So how long ago was that when you figured how much you owed? That was like the end of December, 2008. Okay. Uh, Like, because I had a vacation time off and I was like, let let me put this together. And so then when I was like, okay, I really need to track what I'm doing every month. And that's what launched the blog January 1st, 2009. So I've been doing this for 11 years. And the first few months of it, the first, I would say probably the first two years was literally just me writing down every month how much I paid, how much the difference is. And then I started to get like strategic about it. At first, I started to do what everybody does when they realize that they owe a lot. I started to figure out how I could save money, brown bagging my lunch, cooking at home, like all the minor things. I call them minor now, but they're critical, I think, in anybody's journey, couponing, that kind of stuff. And then I started to get more strategic about it. Look at the interest rates and my minimum payments. Okay. And and I knew math. I wasn't stupid. I'm like, okay, this is a really high interest rate. I'm going to throw more money here first. This one's not costing me as much for my debt. Then I got wise. I started looking at balance transfer offers. And at the time, people were really loosey-goosey with the balance transfer offers. I was the queen of the balance transfer offers. A 0% offer, I was all on it. And they would do 0% balance transfers with no fee at that time or very little fee, 1% fee. And I would take advantage of balance transfers, transfer Large amounts, not like a thousand dollars here or there. I I remember one time I transferred like six thousand dollars off my student loans onto a credit card because it made sense to me. I was paying eight and a quarter percent interest there. They're offering me zero percent here. Forget whatever tax deduction I could get because it didn't account for the interest I was paying. So I started doing things like that. Then I started reading more about personal finance. Because there's a difference between what you do on Wall Street and what you do as an individual with your own money. So education was a huge component for me and really getting wise and more strategic around my money. And then I finally realized I just wasn't making enough money. Point blank, period. Even when when I did the math, I just didn't make enough money. And so then I really started to focus more on, okay, how can I supplement my income? I think that's critical for a lot of us. You can only save so much at some point for many of us. For many of us, we just truly don't make enough. Living in New York City, I was not making enough, period. Even with your degree, right? Were you still at Toyota or did you move on at that point? Yeah, at that point, I still was at Toyota. I was doing strategic research and planning on the automotive industry and on Toyota's strategy for making new money and finding new business. So I had a decent job. But just living in New York, supporting a household, it just wasn't enough money. And and then servicing this debt, I just was not making enough, period. Yeah. Yeah. So I do like this pivot now because a lot of personal finance is about the first step is managing it, like really figuring out what's coming in, what's going out, 
trying to decrease your expenses, which I think is very great. But the key here, and everyone that I've ever spoken to, including myself, the reason why I've been able to pay off or do as much as I've done and saved as much as I've saved is my income as a driving factor. Mm -hmm. So you then started focusing on income and side hustling. Can you talk a little bit about that? So like, what was that journey like for you realizing I'm not making enough? What did you start doing to help supplement and make more? The first thing I did was really assess, could I make more at my job? At the time, I was overtime eligible, so I did a little bit of overtime, but it was limited. So then it was really, could I leave my job and get another job? But at the time, I wasn't ready because I really loved my job and I wasn't ready yet. It took me two years to talk myself into leaving my job so I can make more money. And it wasn't like I left for a lot of money. I left my job and I was making the next job paid me a whopping $2,500 more initially a year. A year. Oh, but a year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I had negotiated to get a raise to an additional $5,000 more three months in. So it would have been $7,500 more for the year. That was more than a 10% raise for me. So had I stayed at my job, a 10% increase would have been like five years down the line, would have been like maybe 10 years. And so within three months of leaving my job, I'm now making 10% more. So there was that part. Okay, um, I actually I- have to stop you here because I think that's something that holds a lot of people back. I speak to a lot of people or people will write me and they're like, I kind of know I'm not making enough, but I'm comfortable. Some of that too, because some people have kids and you're just like the part of the place yeah. I am in my life. I remember for me, even I was in my job for like years and I was so comfortable because I knew everyone and I'm a person of comfort. And I was like, well, if I go somewhere else, what if they're not as nice <laughs> and supportive? Mm-hmm. So I want to talk through that a little bit because I know right now there are people thinking, I probably should leave, but I'm not ready. So what determines yeah. like when you should take a risk and start looking or when it's like, you know what, you should look at the season you're in and maybe it's better to stay. For me, it was very difficult because when I tell you that I loved my colleagues, I loved my colleagues. I loved my job. I loved what I was doing. I loved the company. I was in love. I loved it. And it was very, very difficult for me. And I talked to my now husband about it, my then boyfriend. He's like, if you love it, just stay, whatever. It doesn't even make sense. You're chasing the dollars. And I was like, yeah, but... I'm unhappy in the whole rest of my life because the money is a huge factor. At the time, I didn't have any kids. So that was a big thing for me as well. If I had a whole family that was dependent on me, like small kids, it probably would have taken me even longer to make that move. But I was like, I don't have that kind of responsibility right now. I don't own a home. I have a little bit of savings so that God forbid, if I move and it doesn't work out, I have a little something to fall back on. And the fact that I was going to be making so much more money and the time that it would have taken me to get that raise at my current job was really the deciding factor for me. And then I actually ended up switching careers completely. So I switched into HR completely. So that was like the checklist for me. And you have to figure out what makes sense for the checklist for you. What works for me might not work for you. But that 10% plus raise was really key for me. Now I'm curious, did you actually enjoy the new job with the raise too? Oh, I immediately, I knew it was a mistake. Oh no, I was hoping you were going <laughs> to say it, it was yeah. perfect. <laughs> oh, it was a mistake. Immediately, immediately, immediately. There definitely was a culture shock and it was a career change for me. So there was a learning curve. They knew that it was a career change. They hired me. 90% of it was my personality and not my knowledge. By the way, you guys don't think that if you don't check every single box on a new job that you can't apply, by the way, women do that more than men. We feel like we've got to match 100% when 75% will do. But for them also, things were changing and they just were not a company that was willing to change. They had hired a bunch of new HR people to kind of 
bring them into the new age, but they were resistant to change. So it was very difficult for me who came from a very systemized way of doing things and they were kind of willy-nilly and bringing them up. So I knew immediately I was not going to be there for a very long time. So I really upgraded a lot of their systems and processes and the process improvement that I made, I knew was going to eliminate jobs, like eliminated half of the HR jobs. So for me, I was just at some point just waiting to, to lose my job and at the time was like looking for other things. So no, it didn't work out. But actually, in the long run, it did work out because that 10% bump set me up for the next thing. Okay. And we're going to get to that because it was crucial for me to make that first move because then making the next move was much easier. It removed like a mental barrier for me. Right. And I love that it got to that point of the stepping stone point because I know that maybe the next move someone makes might not be the best or it may seem like a setback, but it's never to me, at least from any story, even when someone feels like it wasn't the best situation, that the setback sets you for the comeback or the next thing. It absolutely did. It definitely set me up for the next thing. In fact, while I was at that job, because I knew I was not going to stay, that's when I started investing in real estate. Even owing so much debt still, I decided that I needed some more passive income streams. And I still owed a bunch of money. I wasn't crazy, but I bought at the very, very lowest end of the market because we were still in the recession. I bought my first property for $19,500. That's the cost of a car. In, <laughs> well, New, York? Cost of money in car. New York City? Not in New York. Oh, okay. It I was about to say, where? Yeah, it was in Pennsylvania, $19,500. And it cash flowed positively for me like... 200 something dollars a month. Not a lot of money, but it was still like income that I wasn't punching a clock to get because I bought that house in all cash. I used that house to leverage to get a second house for 32,500, I think it was, or 34,500. And that house cash flowed about $300 or so. So I had like a $500 income coming in monthly without me having to punch a clock. It doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're used to working for every single dollar that comes in, if I'm not physically working and there's this money coming in every month, to me, it made sense. That was my first foray into additional income. So when you bought the real estate, did you have someone that was doing it too? Like, how did you get into that? Because I want to talk about the things you were doing to earn extra money to help give people ideas. I know it's a different time, right? The market is different, but it doesn't mean that some of the things you did back then won't work now. Oh, yes. They'll still work now. It all depends on where you are. So I had a friend who actually was investing in that area that bought a property. He was from New York. We had actually grown up together. And so he was like, hey, I bought this house in this area. It only cost me this much. And I think I'm going to rent it out. And I'm like, you go ahead and do that. Let me know how that works for you. And so when he came back and he was buying the second property and he was like, oh, do you want to go in on this with me? I was like, no, nah, not really. He bought the second property. And so then he was on property number three. <laughs> It takes a while for things to get in my head. And then I sat down and I actually ran the numbers. For me, the numbers have to make sense because people make a lot of emotional decisions and that's normal. But for me, if the numbers don't make sense, I'm not going to go with it. So when I ran the numbers and I was like, even if I allow for vacancy and you know fixing things, et cetera, it makes sense. And this is a property that I could hold on to for the next 10, 15, 20 years, whatever, however long it is. And if it's an extra little bit of money coming in, then why would I not want to do this? I could take this money and throw it on my debt, or I could take this money 
and set myself up with something that's going to be a longer term investment. And it made sense to me. So I bought the property with the knowledge that my friend had other properties in the area. Um, and I spent a lot of time skinning my knees and hurting my knuckles, fixing it up and learning along the way. And I thought it was great that I could learn with a very cheap property, make the mistakes <laughs> on that priced property, then making a mistake with a $300,000 property. And so that was important for me. And it was great that I had a friend who was already doing it so that I could kind of lean on and say, hey, what about this? What about that? What about this? He wasn't great with numbers and I was. So we kind of leaned on each other, you know, in that aspect. And then my brother started doing it. So between the three of us, we probably ended up owing like 10 or 12 homes in that one area. Mm. It's so important of what exposure does and seeing someone in real life, it's best too, because you actually know it's like a real person that you can trust that's doing it. And also yes. this all takes a level of risk. There's no reward without some risk. And sometimes you don't know how things are going to turn out. So it sounds like even though it took you a little bit of time, you were a little scared, just like most of us are when it comes to new things, you still were were willing to take the risk. So all right, real estate was one of your things that you did. Yes. So was that more of a play to help with? It sounds like it was more of a play to help with income and Mm -hmm. other potential investments. But were you putting down then more debt payments? Or like, what was your plan of action? Yeah, so I would save half of that money towards the house because I'm like, stuff is going to happen. I know I'm going to need that money. And then I'll save half the money towards servicing my debt. So that helped me immediately have that money coming back in to help servicing my debt. So that was really important for me because honestly, and I'll say it now, probably not something somebody else should ever do. The initial money I borrowed out of my 401k because I basically didn't have it saved someplace. And then when I bought the second home, I got a mortgage on the second home, paid the first home back and then put the money back in my 401k. Is it something I would tell somebody else to do? Probably not, okay? But that way I felt like I could immediately have my 401k money working for me now and then working for me later. I needed the money now, but I thought it was important that I save for myself later. Having that money coming in really freed up and opened my eyes to the fact that there were other ways to making money outside of going to work, outside of punching a clock. So then I started looking around and like, where else can I make money? Immediately eBay came to mind. And I had been selling stuff on eBay while I was in college, but I had turned away from it. And I went back to selling on eBay a little bit. You know, things here or there, I'd pick stuff up or if I found something and Craigslist, that was my second thing. If I got a deal on something, I would try to sell it. Craigslist, I was in the city. So New York City has 8 million people. That's a big market to get things to. I had some friends who own like some cell phone stores. So I would like say to them, hey, I want to buy a couple of cell phones from you. Can you like just make your order a little bit bigger than what you're currently ordering? And I'll throw the extra money in your direction, toss me like 10 phones. And so I became like the queen of selling cell phones on the corner of my office. (laughs) Wait, in in the city? In the city, in my (laughs) suit. (laughs) And like people would find me on Craigslist or on eBay and you had to be in person because I know that the the risk is with electronics and for them too. So I'd be like, I will stay with you while you activate the phone. So you know that the phone is legit, that it's not stolen, blah, 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 blah. And so I became like the cell phone queen on (laughs) on How much? Okay, I have to ask, how much profit would you make from a cell phone? Oh, it would be like 50, 60 bucks on a cell phone. So that was golden for me. And sometimes my friend would give me the phones up front with no money. And then I would just put the 50 bucks. Maybe I would get 25, 30 bucks and they would get, you know what I mean? I didn't put any money up front. 
and they would just be nice. And it helped them because they could get a bigger volume, lower price, you know, point per phone. And then I remember one of my friends was selling sneakers and he wanted to order like a huge case of sneakers, but he didn't have all the money to get the price point down. So my brother and I and another friend went in with this guy and we bought literally a container of this one sneaker. (laughs) So we cornered the market on that one sneaker. It was a running shoe. And I sold tens of thousands of dollars on that one sneaker. (laughs) I think about the crazy things I did now. Then I moved into like North Face jackets, but I wouldn't sell them in the U.S. I sold them in Germany because it's cold and it was harder for them to get the North Face jackets. And I would sell them on eBay, but I would only list them internationally. And I would charge like a $30 premium, $40 premium on the, the jackets. I could literally buy them retail, mark them up like $40 to sell them in Europe, ship them to Europe because I would charge them for the shipping and still make like a $40 profit which was a no-brainer for me. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, so I started selling things. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's, like, fascinating. So how long ago was this? So that was probably 2011 or so. Yeah, 11, 12, somewhere off that. And then I was laid off my job. And that mm. really ramped things up for me. When I was laid off my job, because I knew it was going to come. I knew it was coming. I was waiting for it. I negotiated a severance package, which gave me a little bit of time. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to work for myself full time. That's it. I'm making decent money selling on eBay and stuff. And I could put together what I get between my real estate stuff and the eBay. It's okay. But I I realized if I really wanted to make a progress, if I ever wanted to buy a house, if I wanted to have kids, it was enough to sustain me and pay my debts for now. But it wouldn't be enough for me to make real progress in life. If I wanted to save money for retirement, if I wanted to do anything else, I was going to be very stuck. I joined the challenge of other people who were in personal finance who were trying to see who could turn $1,000 into the most money at the end of the year. And so I started selling on Amazon and Amazon blew my whole life open. That became a big, big, big thing for me because at the time I was unemployed, And I turned $1,000 into 20-something thousand dollars in sales, knowing nothing about Amazon the first year. And so ramped it up the next couple of years and was selling a good amount of money on Amazon. But I still felt like I didn't have enough security. I didn't have medical insurance. I didn't have a 401k. None of that stuff that was really important, especially if you ever want to have a family or anything. If you want to buy a house because... Now you're self-employed. You've got to have all these years of demonstrated like right. income and all the stuff. And it's just easier having a job. So I was like, okay, maybe I'll consult for a little while, put some money in my pocket, landing a consulting gig that was supposed to be for three months. And I ended up being there for four and a half years. <laughs> it turned into a real job. But here's how that job that I was at for like a year and a half, that stepping stone job that I hated helped me because the 10% increase that I had gotten from that first job was really important to me because it opened my eyes to what I should be getting paid. Mm-hmm. So when it was time for this job, when they made an offer, and was like, okay, well, how much do you want to get paid? I kind of reached out to two individuals and said, I really don't know how much I should be getting paid. I want to get $5,000 more than I was getting at the last job. Now, within like a two, three year period, that would have been a $12,000, $13,000 increase from my first job. It would have been like a 20% increase from that job, right? 
which would never have happened <laughs> in that time. If you stayed, right. So the one guy was like, yeah, ask for $5,000 more. That's pretty good. That's going to be like 20, 20% more than you were making like just a couple of years ago. And my other friend who was a woman was like, you're out of your mind. You need to be asking for $20,000 more or $25,000 more. And I was like, you are smoking crack. There is no way <laughs> these people are going to be paying me that. I was making like $60,000 a year before. You're telling me I need to be making, and she was like, you need to be making somewhere between ninety-five dollars and $100,000, $100,000 minimum. And that would have been within a three-year period. I was like, you are insane. I'm not going to get this job because there's no way they're going to pay for me. Long story short, I went in between the two and we settled on $90,000 salary. So I went from making $60,000 just three years before to $90,000. Mind blown. I never would have thought it was possible. But I needed that crappy secondary in-between job, that stepping stone job to get me to 90. Because had I stayed with my first job, not in a million years. Mm-hmm. Never would have happened. And definitely not within three years. It would never have happened. And you know what else you needed? You needed your friend to tell you like, no, 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 you're thinking too small. It's crazy because our minds can only conceive like, unless you have a wild imagination, I have a wild imagination. Like I think really big sometimes and people look at me like, really Jamila? Like you think you could do that? I'm like, why not? Right. But there's so many of us. I'm sure there are things even now that I put limits on myself because I'm like, wait, that is not possible. But with the money stuff, so many of us think, and it's funny, you could like do this exercise yourself. Like if you're not earning six figures right now and you're listening to this, I want you to challenge yourself and pretend or think to yourself, is it possible that I can earn six figures? And if your initial thought is no, like hell no, that's like crazy. That's mm-hmm. already just a block that it's going to be hard for you to see opportunities like that. Then it's going to be hard for you to ask for your worth if you don't see that as your worth. I think it's great that you had someone who told you like, no, no, think bigger. So many people don't think it's possible for them. And it is, it is. It is. I didn't think it was possible for me. And to be quite honest with you, I didn't know many women of color. And as an immigrant, I don't know anybody in my family was making six figures. I just didn't. Unless they had like three, four jobs they pieced together and they were doing this and they were hustling, you know, not at a job. And the funny thing is that my friend who told me you were worth more was not a person of color. To her, this was normal and this was possible. To me, this was not normal to see a Black woman in her early 30s, making six figures was impossible to me. It was like crazy. And that's why I scaled back and I didn't ask for what she told me I should ask for because I was like, there's no way. They're, they're not going to go for it. But yeah, I needed to know that it was possible. But she knew that it was possible because that was the norm for her. And that wasn't the norm for me. So get you some other friends <laughs> yeah. outside of your circle who see things differently, even when you can't see them. Yeah. And they always say like, it's great, you know, your circle of influence, like it's great. People get that support when they look like you, but ask the men like that you work with, ask the men in your field, because they definitely have that confidence of like, listen, I'm going to get paid what I'm worth. And so, yes, super important. I love that you brought that up, that she actually was like a non-person of color that like told you that. And that's how you become a real ally to people of color even Mm -hmm. as men is just like sharing this information because while it could be our own limitations and you could, you could look at someone and be like, well, you're putting that on yourself. Sometimes all it takes is for that one seed to be planted. Did you be like, Oh, so that's what that could be to help someone. Yeah, Cause I never, I never would have, I would have asked for like 75,000 
and been like happy getting 75 and they would have been like sure sure no. sure that's great we'll give you that they were happy when i asked for 90 they were like no hesitation nothing they're like okay problem no no problem fine here you go which told me immediately you idiot you probably could have gotten more like your friend told you if i had asked for 75,000 i know they would have been like running around the office being really happy that i only asked for 75,000 and so now i here i am on the other side and I'm, and i do have a full-time job now and I am in that six-figure range. I know I've hit a certain point, right? And for the next level, do I want to do what it takes to get them to the next level? And I get recruiters calling me every week. I have recruiters in my inbox. And for me, I've just reached a point where I'm like, I'm good. My next step is completely working for myself again, full-time. I'm not interested in climbing the corporate ladder. I'm not interested in the next level of money coming from some corporation. I'm interested in my level of money coming from me. Right. Which I love. So you are earning six figures in your job. And so what's cool here is that you kind of went to working for yourself and realizing that for your goals, it wasn't enough. So you, right. you have a job now and you have a child. So now you have yeah. a family, right, that you are supporting. And yes. what does that look like for you? Because the side hustle, one of the things I wanted to discuss with you, because you had a lot of experience with side hustles, you still do a lot of side hustles, which I want to get into. But what now does yep. your life look like balancing all that? Yeah, it's very difficult because I wasn't still supposed to be having a full-time job. In fact, I was working for myself again, round two, working for myself. And a friend called me to come consult. Once again, it was supposed to be like a three-month consulting gig. And I feel like I should never do this because every time I try to work for myself, I'm working for myself for a couple of months and somebody calls me to consult, it ends up being a job. It was supposed to be a three-month consulting gig. I have now been here for a year and like three months. So <laughs> for me, the second time around, it has been very, very difficult to adjust being an employee again. However, it still does make things easier. Like I bought my house a year and a half ago. So when I was in the process of buying my house and buying this particular house that we moved to because we had another house, again, it made it easier because now you've got a job, right? So we're conditioned as a society to default to you have a job that's a more secure thing and it makes things financially, if you're getting loans and things, easier. That said, this place that I work for is fully aware that this is not my do-all, be-all, and end-all. Full disclosure, you guys plucked me out of working for myself. <laughs> I was only supposed to help you out for three months. So they do give me the leeway to continue doing the things that I need to do and being, you know, doing my business. I sit in their office two to three times a week. I don't work traditional hours. My hours range between nine to four or five. However, I do work randomly overnight, weekends, whatever, because the role that I encompass is, is international. So I can't ever be a person that works a nine to five. It just doesn't work. I do have unlimited vacation time, but because I work around the clock, it doesn't really matter because even if I take a vacation, I'm really working. So they work, they work with me in the framework of the things that I do. There is no such thing as balance. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now. I don't have balance. I have a two-year-old. I try to be as conscious and present as I can when I'm with him. But that just means that I don't get as much sleep as normal people probably do. I wear a Fitbit. It tells me, hey, you suck at sleeping. Some nights are four-hour nights. You know, on average, it might be five hours. So there isn't as much balance as I would like. However, I know that I'm sacrificing right now so that I can set myself up for round three working for myself, which yeah. is not going to come back to me working for somebody else again. 
even on a consultative basis, because I just don't want to. I want to focus on my son and my business and my family. And that's it. So how are you now building up to working for yourself? Because a lot of people listening may be thinking, okay, so I get the transitions and maybe this is something I want to like try to chart and map out myself. So what are you currently doing as side hustles or helping to bridge that gap for your income? And yeah, so what's that look like for you? So for me, it's important that I don't have one revenue stream because things will come and go, they ebb and flow. And having done this and then coach other people through it and seeing it in real practice, it's important for me that I don't just have replacement level income. I have replacement level income times a couple. I live in New York. It is a very high cost of living. If I lived in Alabama, it would be a different story. So my replacement level income is not the same as somebody else's. Then I make a six-figure salary. I do have a six-figure lifestyle because I have a home that I'm paying for. I didn't have a home before. I now have a kid. That costs money. Daycare. I looked at how much I paid for daycare last year. Ridiculous. I would never have conceived of paying that much for daycare. So I'm being very realistic and very intentional on what replacement level income looks like and making sure there are multiple revenue streams. So for me, definitely speaking engagements was very important to me before, but I didn't set myself up well enough to have that be a very regular thing. So now I am. In fact, I'll I'll be speaking at the city of New York on an entrepreneurship initiative that they have. So now the industry people are recognizing the things that I've done enough where I'm able to speak at large events and at cities, for example, and be invited, building the Elevate Influencer Conference, which we'll talk about as well, and what that looks like as a a revenue stream for me, as well as serving my community. I have the Hustle Crew, which is a side hustle group where I teach other people how to side hustle. And so the revenue stream from that is from the classes that I teach. So I have that as well. My blog, I demonetized my blog about six years ago so that I would not influence the things that I talked about because I felt At some point, I was getting money in from my blog and I felt like I was being influenced by the money and I didn't want that to be something that drove me. So I demonetized my blog completely. I've had offers to buy my blog, multiple offers. Last year, I had like four or five. I've had some large companies approach me to buy my blog. And I thought, is that something that I really want to do? Yeah, I do. Probably within the next two or three years, but that means I've got to re-monetize my blog and build up the revenue stream there so that I can sell it for something that I think is worthwhile. And I have about four pillars of revenue stream for myself. So that if one's down, one's up, you know, or one's more passive, one's more active yeah. uh, so that I can have a good mix of things. And I still have real estate, by the way, sold the other properties, the low end properties. And so now one house that we have in our portfolio is a house that's $500,000. So here I started with a house that's $19,500. And now we have a house that's over $500,000 that cash flows positively about $1,400 a month. And we can leverage that into eventually where we want to buy additional properties and not a buy and hold strategy, but a buy and flip with additional investors so that we have that as a revenue stream as well. As you're talking through all these income streams, it's clear that based on your experiences and your natural talents and some things you've developed, you've been able to target or find things that work for you, even though you're not getting enough sleep. So what can someone who is listening and they're like, I don't know where even to start with finding a side hustle or how to monetize? Like, what are some like first steps that they should really consider to making it legitimate? Because there's so many like potential side hustles, but they don't make any money. 
It's just like a lot yes. of effort. So the first thing that I always tell people is, one, if you can make more money at your work, do that first. That's the first thing. We always overlook jobs. The second thing is there are two steps for people, and it depends on where you are. One, do you need money now, 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 now? Are you desperate? Can you not feed your kids? Are you behind on your rent? That's one thing versus somebody who just needs to supplement their income. If you are the need money now, 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 rent is due, there are immediate side hustles that pay money. They don't involve too much brain. It is physical labor. You do it. They pay you. You're done. We're talking about like your Ubers and your DoorDashes, your TaskRabbit, those kinds of things. So those are those structured programs that anybody basically can do, right? Then if you're not on that pathway and the other is, I want to supplement my income, I've got time, I can take my time. The other path I tell people is, what is it that you absolutely love to do? And how can you monetize that thing? So people like to knit or crochet. Okay, great. You can knit or crochet, sell that on Etsy. Do you have a great voice? Okay, can you do voiceovers? Do you like to tell stories? Do you like doing magic tricks? Okay, you could be a magician at a children's party. I say find what your talent is and exploit the heck out of that for money. So that's the first thing. It's one of those two things that you have to kind of think, where am I at and what do I want to do? And choose one of those two paths and start there is where I tell everyone. Yeah, I actually love that you made the distinction between I need money because like, I'm about to get evicted. I know that's extreme, but some people may be facing that versus. Oh, yeah, okay, I see that all the time. Yeah. Versus like, OK, I still need money, but it's not as extreme. Like it doesn't have to turn a profit tomorrow. I can right. wait a couple months. And the people who are in group number two, I tell them whether you believe it or not, that's entrepreneurship. That's a small business. We call it a side hustle, but that's essentially what it is. You know, you're starting yourself a micro business. And in case you didn't know, I'm sure Jamila has covered this. Women are the ones leading the pack of these micro businesses, specifically women of color. And that's what they are. They are micro businesses. And maybe we'll start out with just us with a little bit of money here or there. And as it grows, then you may want to formalize it. But if you start with something that you can do, that you know how to do, maybe you're doing it at work right now or something you love to do and you can monetize that, you can turn that into a business. It doesn't mean that you leave your job. I'm not, I never tell people to leave their jobs. Number one, hold on to your job with a death grip and build your business while you're at work or build your side hustle while you're working. And then if that's something that you choose to do full-time, you continue to build it, decide how to grow it, and then potentially move after you're making at least 1.5 times whatever you make it work, and then you grow and go. And that's not to say that one side is better than the other. Some people are just happy doing Uber Eats and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I've tested it out myself for my groups. Yeah, I think it's super because as being someone who's left a full-time job that was like consistent earnings every month into going into entrepreneurship full-time, I can't stress enough how important it is. I know it's always like always greener on the other side and I'm very blessed to have the kind of flexibility that I have. So I don't take that for granted. But there is something to be said for a steady like paycheck every month and being able to reach your saving and investing goals, right? And so this life, like I think is super important. I left my job before I was replacing any portion of income because like it was more like back against the wall. I can't like do this anymore. But if you're not in that situation and you can hold on to your full-time job as long as possible while building up a business, do that. (laughs) You don't want to start a business full-time or jump into 
entrepreneurship full time and not prepared because if you're stressed about money now without that it gets worse oh my god yeah (laughs) it does get worse and it's it's tough for us if you're a mom because you have that additional responsibility i feel it more keenly now than ever before so whereas my husband's always like don't do that just just come to your business full time whatever whatever i'm more like I've got this little person who's dependent on me and he's not just dependent on me now. He's going to be dependent on me for the next 20 years or so. And we have to think about not just right now, but what legacy we're leaving and what we're building for him. So a lot of what I'm focused on is that long-term wealth building right now. And it's not just for right the second, it's for the long-term. So even with the property that we have that's rented out, that was a home that we were supposed to sell to buy our home that we're in right now. Instead, I convinced my husband to gut run of the house. We spent $250,000 gut running that house to rent it out. So we've increased the value of that property. It's probably $550,000 for that property. It probably was worth three and change before, but it's rented for now. If we do need to sell it, I could sell it. But it means that we bought our home for the equivalent. We spent five and a quarter. It's probably worth about 600 right now. But whereas I could be in a home where I don't have a mortgage, I do. I have a mortgage here. I have a mortgage there. But I'm thinking long term, Mm -hmm. right? I'm thinking long term, strategic. So between the two homes, going from owing $120,000, $130,000, now owning property that's valued of like $1.1 million, I could never have seen that. But if I was only thinking short term, I wouldn't be where I am right now. So you have to take care of the short term, but you also have to think long term as well. And at the same point, <laughs> the girl who borrowed $19,500 from her 401k to buy that first property now has a retirement portfolio that's $275,000. Couldn't have seen that. <laughs> yeah, Never could have seen that. Right. But I also always saved for my retirement while I was trying to get out of debt as well. So you do have to have a short term vision and a long term vision, especially when you have kids. Especially yeah. And, and you don't have kids as well. Yeah, even Who's going to take care of you when you get older? <laughs> right. Right. And I actually I'm glad that you brought up that you still contributed to retirement while paying off debt. I always say this. It's probably redundant at this point, but everyone's journey is different. And so yes. there's going to be decisions that you make that make that will not work for another person. Me leaving my job before I was replacing my income, there are supporting factors that allowed that to happen. You borrowing from your 401k, look where it's got you now. All these things, like I remember me buying my first property in Dumbo, like I was not financially supposed to be able to do that. Like that was a Mm -hmm. risk at the time. And it's like the best thing I've ever done. But at that moment, it was also very, it felt good. But for someone else that would have had made sense, it'd be like, what are you doing? So that first that $19,000 yeah. property, I shouldn't have done. I still had a hundred and something thousand dollars that I owed. Conventional wisdom. And if I were giving me advice, I probably would have told myself, are you out of your mind? Like, what are you doing? You crazy person, right? But it just so happened that it worked out. And those were all stepping stones. It was the $19,000 property that led to the $30,000 property that led to the property that was 300000 that's now 500000 buying the 500000 those little stepping, those little pebbles that build yes. up. It was the job that was 45000 then 50000 then 60000 then seventy five, then 90, now 130000 It's just like those little right. pebbles and stepping stones, and you have to go through. We try to rush the process sometimes, but that's that's really important. 
And don't compare your pebble that you're on right now, if you're listening to a big stepping stone that or this like peak that you see someone else on, right? Whatever you're doing right now, whether you think you're making a mistake or you're not, you're doing what everything you should be doing. Like it's a stepping stone as long as you keep going. Okay. So Sandy, I want you to talk about Elevate now, because one of the other things that you are working on, that's your baby, your other baby, I know is this network that you've created, this conference called Elevate. I want you to explain exactly what that is and why it's so important. Yes. So while I was on my journey, I looked around at the time and there weren't a lot of people of color who were talking about money, who were open. And I had read a study by Prudential. It's like the financial state of Black America. And they were talking about just the disparity of everything that had happened to people during the recession and just how far behind people of color were compared to their counterparts. And it felt very personal to me. It was like, I was struggling myself at the time. I knew everything that I was trying to do. I'm, I got this job. I've got this side hustle, that side hustle. I'm selling this on the street corners in Manhattan. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. So everybody knew their individual journeys, but I realized that we weren't looking at the bigger picture and the fact that just as individuals of color, we were all just so far behind. So I said, what is it going to take to change? And I realized that what it needed to change was me. It needed me. It needed my friends. People needed to see that there were other people of color who were talking about money, who were learning about money, who were actively doing it. So I started recruiting my friends, started to create a network. And this is back in 2013 that I started this. And I said, we need to be more visible. People of color need to see other people talking about money. They need to hear our stories. They need to know that they're not alone. And we need to be proactive with giving education to other individuals so that they didn't make the same mistakes that we had made, hopefully, because a lot of us learn through mistakes. So I started what's now called the Elevate Mastermind, and we started to try to uplift each other and be more visible. At some point, I realized we need to continue to grow, pull other people into the circle. The bigger circle we have, the more people we can affect. So I created the Elevate community. We invite in individuals who talk about money and reach communities of color. The goal of the Elevate community is to really expand our visibility, both with corporations and with the individuals that we reach, because people don't realize that people of color have a $1.2 trillion buying power, but we are not good with finance. Like we have the money, but we're not good with finance. So the Elevate conference is meant to bring us all together so that we can network together learn how to grow each other's business and how to affect greater change within the our own communities and communities of color when it comes to personal finance. The reason why it's, it's really important is because a lot of brands don't even know how to reach us or how to talk to us or how to reach our audiences. And they want to. They have products and services that they want to market to us. Or some of them have some mea culpa, some forgiveness that they need to kind of have within the community because of some traditional things that have occurred that they know that they're trying to right these wrongs. So I really want us to be a driving force in personal finance for people to know that there are other people of color here, that we are doing things within the community, that people of color are mindful about their money, and that we don't have to stumble through and just learn from making mistakes. That the 11 years of lessons that I've had that the lessons that Jamila has had, that Tanya Rapley has had, that a Dominique Brown has had, that an Ash Cash, whomever, can reach you and you don't have to make the mistakes that we've all made and you can learn from all of us and kind of apply whatever applies in your life to your particular situation. 
Yeah. And I think it's such a great community and network. So I'll just share this with you. So I've had um, Sean Rochester on from the Black Tax, and that was like an amazing episode. So impactful. And the reason why like I even knew about Sean was because it was mentioned in the Elevate community that we're in on Facebook. So first, I want people to find out more about Elevate and this conference. So I know I have a lot of people who are aspiring personal finance, like writers and content creators listening. And so and if yes. you're a person of color, even if you're not, and you want to be an ally, like you need to just check out how you can be a part of Elevate. So I want you to share more about where people can find out about Elevate, about the Elevate conference, and then for just you, like how they can follow your journey and what you're up to. Yeah, you can find it about Elevate at elevatewdc.com. The conference is in Washington, D.C. this year. So elevatewdc.com. And you can find out a lot about that, who will be speaking, the things that we're doing. And even so, you probably want to connect anyway, just to be a part of the network and the community, because I envision us being a force for change going forward when it comes to personal finance. I want people to know that we're here and that we are a driving force. For me, I'm all over the internet. <laughs> you can find me everywhere as Yes, I Am Cheap. That's my main brand. Or you can find me at um, I Am Sandy Smith on every social media network everywhere. I'm pretty responsive. So those are the two ways that you can connect with me everywhere. And then just in general, whether my story resonates or not, I would encourage everybody to find somebody who you connect with on a personal level whose stories speak to you and see what lessons you can learn from them and apply in your own life one way or another. Yeah, this is great. And I will link all that in the show notes so you can find out more about Elevate and Sandy. Thanks so much, Sandy, for coming on the show. Thanks, Jamila. Okay, journeyers, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sandy. And I really would like you to check out her Elevate Influencer Conference. So if you are a person of color that wants to figure out how to better serve your community, even if you're an ally, you're not a person of color, but you want to figure out how you can help serve more people of need to learn about financial education, then get involved. You can check out more about the conference at journeytolaunch.com slash elevate. And then you can also link up with Sandy where she mentioned to find her. Now, this podcast, I always say I want you to get not only inspired, but take action. So if there's something that you heard that you maybe you didn't understand or you want to research, write it down or take a mental note and take some time in here because I'm not just only here to inspire. Like I love it when you say that you feel better from listening to the episode, but I want you to take action. And so if you thought of something or learned something from this episode, share it with me, tag me at journey to launch on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, take a screenshot, share it with your family and friends, right? Like don't keep this information all to yourself. I am sure there's someone in your life that needs to hear this. Now, I always say this, but if you are listening to this on Apple podcast, that's that purple app on your phone, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I read every review, but literally doesn't matter where you listen. This podcast is free. So once you subscribe to it, you'll just get all the episodes automatically downloaded to wherever you listen, probably your phone if you listen there. But it's just a great way to keep in touch and to make sure that you don't miss an episode. Don't forget, you can get the episode show notes for this episode by going to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this. And you can still grab your jumpstart guide for free to help you on your journey to financial freedom by going to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart. Okay. 
That's all I had until next week. Keep on journeying, journeyers. Journeyers.